0: Hello and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Suzette Sutherland from University of Washington talking about
1: urinary incontinence evaluation and treatment. Um, It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Sutherland from uh, the University of Washing, uh, University of Washington. She's the director of female urology there, um, and she'll be talking to us about the AU- AUAS- SUFU guidelines 2019 on urinary incontinence, overactive bladder, um, urge and stress urinary incontinence. So, without further ado, um, thank you very much for for speaking with us today.
0: Great. Well, I think this is just a wonderful collaborative effort, and I'm just excited to be a part of it. Really. Um, so. Um, As said, I was asked to talk about urinary incontinence. I'm looking at the overactive bladder, urge incontinence and stress incontinence, um, AUA and SUFU guidelines. Um, And just so that those who don't know, the guidelines uh, have been updated as of 2019. They came out before in 2017. Um, Like many things are constantly being updated. So I will uh, let you know what some of the more focused aspects of the 2019 guidelines are. Um, here's a list of my disclosures. So again, the outline, look at the evaluation and then the treatment per the AUA guidelines um, for overactive bladder, urge incontinence, and stress incontinence. This is a, a report that came out of the International Urogynecology Association and the International Continent Society, uh, looking at proper terminology for a variety of these female pelvic floor dysfunctions. So this is a re- good resource Uh, and all the terminology in this talk today comes from this. So urinary incontinence, of course, we're urologists. We know what that is. There are different types. These are the main ones that we see in women, and that's what this talk uh, pertains to. Stress incontinence, of course, with any physical exertion or Valsalva urgency urinary incontinence associated with that urgency or that sudden compelling desire to urinate that's hard to defer. That's how they diagnose that or, or define that. Mixed incontinence is having both of those together. The vast majority of my patients have mixed incontinence and teaching them to tease out what is happening when, when they leak and, and identifying is it was that a stress or urge is half the battle really, because as you start treatment options, if it does not, working overall for their incontinence, they think it's a failure, even though it might be happening for or helping for the urgent incontinence and not helping the stress. And then continuous incontinence, of course, involuntary loss of leakage is just constantly dripping, right? Helps us with a diagnostic thought process about what might be going on. Again, uh, looking at OAB, it is a syndrome and what that Uh, main uh, aspect of that really is that there has to be a presence of bothersome urinary symptoms. Uh, So it has to be a self-report by the patient of urgency urgency, incontinence, frequency, and or nocturia, and in the absence of any other pathological thing that's going on that you think is irritating the bladder that could be causing those symptoms, of course. So frequency, we look at daytime frequency, we look at nighttime frequency, that which interrupts the sleep, right? So the getting up in the morning, first thing in the morning doesn't count as getting up once because they're getting up anyway. And then 24 hours, of course. So what's normal? Usually, we think of up to about seven voids per day, in the waking hours is normal. But again, it's relative to the patient's perception, right? So how they perceive what's going on is what really matters. So the bother factor is really the key. If the woman's not complaining of it, you know we can talk to her about what we could do to maybe improve some things if we think it's impeding her lifestyle. But if she doesn't think it's impeding, then we don't touch it. Again, um, we look at these symptoms as underneath this big umbrella of irritative voiding symptoms. And so we absolutely need to first rule out anything that could be irritating the bladder, causing these symptoms so that we don't inadvertently just call it idiopathic overactive bladder and start her on our OAB pathway, right? What are the things cause irritative voiding symptoms? Well, we know, of course, here's a big differential urinary tract infections, polydipsia, diabetes issues, right? Or even interstitial cystitis, painful bladder syndrome, syndrome, people that have some pain component associated with these symptoms as well. So we need to make sure to rule these things out with our evaluation before we move on into just the simple treatment options. So, here's the AUA SUFU um, OAB clinical care pathway. I'm sure we're all familiar with this. Again, it was updated in 2019. The part I've highlighted here is just really the evaluation part, and we're going to go over that quickly. And then the rest of all of this is all about treatment. So, just to point that out to you, makes it easier to look at that graph. So, the first guideline statement the clinicians should um, engage in a diagnostic process. Well, what should that process actually require? There are three things that are mandatory or the minimum requirements per the AUA guidelines. History, physical exam, and a focused physical exam involving the pelvic area, and then a UA. That's it. So, any questions on your exams, that's it. History, physical, and UA for overactive bladder urge continence. That's the mandatory requirement. So in the history, you know, the vast majority of the time, you can talk to the patient, you ask the right questions, and you know what's going on. And you do the rest of your evaluation, what you feel is necessary in order to confirm, as well as rule out anything else that might be a surprise. Um, so you're asking these simple questions that are sort of listed here, looking at do they have any um, difficulty emptying, hesitancy, what's their volume intake, so on and so forth. And again, what's the bother factor? You're also ruling out in your history any comorbid issues, right, that again could be contributing to the overactive bladder symptoms. See Things like uncontrolled diabetes, recurrent UTIs, hematuria, of course, or do they have huge prolapse? They're coming in for urgency, urgent continence, and if you don't ask the questions, you feel something bulging out there, you might totally miss that. And then if you don't go on to do a physical exam, which you should, but if you don't and just start some therapy, uh, you may miss a big point. So moving on to the physical exam, this is from uh, Campbell's, the focused pelvic exam. I like the way this is laid out because it really is sort of systematic the way you do it in clinic with the exception of the digital rectal exam as listed here. First, I would put that at the bottom of this list. You look at the pelvic exam, the external genitalia. Then you're looking at the urethral meatus Underneath the urethra, you're feeling for any lumps, bumps, diverticuli. Getting in a little further to the bladder, feeling for any firmness or tenderness. Looking at the whole vaginal area. What's the quality of the vaginal tissue? Is there any prolapse? Getting up further to see the cervix. And then doing the bimanual uterine uh, as well as adnexa if you can feel. Then coming out, looking at the perineal area, the anus. A Closer look at that for hemorrhoids and then a digital rectal exam. So the way this is laid out, it makes it easy to think about what am I going to do when the woman's right there in front of me? I'm going to follow this kind of algorithm and make sure I touch all the bases that I'm supposed to be doing on the physical exam. So for other studies, um, supporting information, again, the UA is part of the mandatory evaluation. Why a UA? Well, there are two main reasons why we get a UA, right? What are we looking for? We're looking to rule out a urinary tract infection and rule out hematuria, right? If they do have hematuria by the guidelines greater than three red blood cells by high powered field, um, that warrants a proper urological evaluation, right? We're looking for other things that could be irritating the bladder. So what about a urine culture? Per the guidelines, and I think it's, um, you know, practical sense, no. Um, we should dispense with that automatic knee-jerk reaction of a UAUC, sending it off all the time because you should look at your UA and respond to the UA. If the UA is negative, it's negative. It does not warrant a UC. What about other diagnostic things? Per the guide statement number two, again, culture, we just, done. what are some other things? Another would be the post-void residual. Well, per the guidelines, it is not necessary in patients who are otherwise uncomplicated and who you were just gonna start first-line therapy, so behavioral therapies, or even trying part of the second-line therapy, which would be overactive bladder medications. A post-forward residual is recommended in anyone who has any kind of obstructive symptoms or certainly any other complicated history. So in my practice, I find a post residual is very helpful almost in all patients, not part of the guidelines. Again, it says it's not necessary if you have an uncomplicated patient. Maybe most of my patients are more complicated, but you see the patients who come in and their main complaint is I'm not emptying my bladder. And you can prove they do empty their bladder. It's not an issue that the bladder can't get the urine out, it's a sensory um, uh, issue. And the patient feels that they need to go to the bathroom frequently because of the overactive bladder symptoms. That's what makes them think they're not emptying their bladder. So doing a post residual proves to them that they are emptying their bladder, if that's your suspicion, as well as if they're not, the treatment algorithm is completely different. We as urologists recognize that, right? And then the other supporting documents could be bladder diaries. If it is, it should be at least a three-day diary. And I should say I should have taken at least out of that sentence. The validated questionnaires and things show, or validated studies have shown that three days certainly suffices. It shows uh, the information that you need and you don't get uh, um, significant additional information if you do a five or a seven day bladder diary. And it's much more cumbersome to the patient. But a one day of course does not suffice. So a three day diary is really where the money's at. And you need to look at volume in and volume out in order to really be uh, that helpful. And then validated questionnaires can be helpful. Uh, for those who still uh, either you know can 't figure it out, or it 's good for really um, research purposes and looking at outcomes here 's a bladder diary we 're familiar with what this is. Sometimes it really is a huge aha moment not only for the provider but also for the patient when they do that. And in this case, you can go through and you look and the patient BL stands for Bud light, and you can see. How many times there's a little bit of bug Light going on and she wonders why she's being so often, right? So it can be a little enlightening. So the third statement that's important, I put this as a question, but the statement, of course, is asking, you know, saying, you know, that in an uncomplicated patient, we don't really need to do a lot of other um, significant urological workups such as urodynamics, cystoscopy, or any imaging. So the answer to this question really is no. Um, it's not necessary in the otherwise uncomplicated patient. With everything that I just said, you should be able to see what, figure out what's going on and um, go ahead and treat the patient. If the patients have some complicating factors, though, or are refractory to your initial treatment options um, or treatment attempts, um, then that puts them in a different category. Here are some things that make them complicated, certainly our neurogenic bladder population. If they had prior surgeries or again, failed some treatment options. So um, the choice of your uh, t- testing is gonna depend on, you know, the history and physical that you do and your clinical judgment. So again, if they had prior incontinence surgery, that makes them a little more complicated. You might think about doing a cystoscopy. Do they have anything abnormally in the bladder that shouldn't be there from their prior surgery, whether it's mesh or even a stitch, uh, and then a subsequent stone? Um, Or are there more obstructive voiding symptoms that are there that um, uh, don't pass the sniff test, so to speak, and um, you need to do a urodynamics to really see what their bladder function is. So certainly if they're having any outflow issues um, at all that are proven with an elevated post-forward residual, then I would get it some type of emptying study, a urodynamics is helpful. So again, in summary of the overactive bladder part for the evaluation, the mandatory part of the evaluation is a history, a focused physical, and a UA. Uh, a PVR can be helpful, fluid diary again, if it's at least three days, volume in and out, and these other things, cystoscopy, urodynamics, imaging, are not indicated in the otherwise uncomplicated initial evaluation. If they are complicated, then think about doing some of these tests to help you make your diagnosis. And here again is the AUA SUFU pathway, and you can see the history, physical, and um, and other studies at the top for the evaluation. So the rest again is about treatment. So we're gonna go into the treatment next for this. We can break it up into three parts, first line, second line, and third line therapies. You've heard those. What I will say is there is a fourth line therapy. It's actually always been there, but there's been a lot, not much focus on them. And that's why the newer guidelines in 2019 are really sort of bringing that back to light to remind people that there is fourth line treatment which we'll go into. So what, um, what differentiates this really is the first line is that there's no risks. They're behavioral therapies, there's no risks to the patient. Second line is it's not invasive, the options are there, but they do potentially have some side effects that impede the, uh, or compromise the patient's quality of life. And the third line, now there are some risks associated that you need to talk to the patients about. So that's why they're classified as first, second, and third line therapies. Here's our guideline clinical pathway again. Here's the first line therapy, education, behavioral treatment, pharmacological management is our second line therapy, and then our third line therapies over here, which we're going to talk about. So in the first line, behavioral treatment, we won't spend a lot of time on this. It's, I think most people understand this here. Education is key. Looking at their bladder diaries uh, and doing some bladder retraining is very helpful. Pelvic floor muscle therapy, especially with urge suppression techniques. And then looking at fluid management and even weight loss can be helpful. If we look at second-line therapies, one of the guidelines statements says that the clinicians really should offer all patients oral anti-muscarinics and or oral beta agonists. And it says specifically there in the guidelines, and we also know from FDA approval studies, that in appreciable doses, there is no one standout in all of these types of medications that are available for the bladder. They all work about the same at appreciable doses. So that's what that yellow says. Here's the long laundry list of medications that are available that are anticholinergics and the beta-3 agonists. Again, there are some differences between them with respect to the severity of side effect profiles in the anticholinergics and some that cross the blood-brain barrier and others that don't. But otherwise, with respect to efficacy, there's no standout. The guidelines therefore recommend though um, what I did say is there are short-acting and long-acting and some of the, of the options there and the guidelines specifically say that we should try extended release or long-acting therapy first because we know that the side effect profile is actually more favorable with the long-acting formulary than it is with the short-acting. Now, I know many of us are always having to argue with the insurance companies and we can't get it until they fail the short-acting first um, uh, and that's unfortunate, but the guidelines do say that we should be trying when possible the extended release formularies first. Then we also talk about if you have an inadequate response rather than throwing it out, the baby with the bathwater, titrate the dose up and see how they do. If they have intolerable side effects, then switch to a different agent. And then the guidelines, what's new is they talk about combination therapy, especially with the advent of the beta-3 agonists now that don't have those typical anticholinergic side effects of dry mouth constipation, that adding a a beta-3 agonist to the anticholinergic may add efficacy, and some people have noted that in some reports, um, without additional side effects. So really looking at the addition of a combination therapy can be helpful before moving on. Again, the guidelines here, we have our first line, then our second line, and what happens if you've tried a number of those things there pretty diligently, the patient's been compliant and they're not successful or not adequately successful, they're not satisfied, we call that ROBI, or refractory overactive bladder. And those are the patients then that weren't further Treatment options, which uh, fall into our third line category, and that's what we're going to look at next, falls into the tibial nerve stimulation, sacral nerve stimulation, or onabotulinum toxin. So, the first one, tibial nerve stimulation. I think many people are familiar with this, but it is uh, a A 30-minute session looks like a little acupuncture needle, goes right in by that posterior tibial nerve in the ankle. The patients are there for a 30-minute session once a week for 12 weeks. And at the end of the 12 weeks, they come back once a month in order to maintain whatever benefit that they've gained. By and large, most of the studies show that it really is helpful mostly for those patients that have mild to moderate symptoms, patients that have severe incontinence it doesn't really do that much for, um, but it really is a a very low-risk type of therapy. The only problem is that the patients have to come to the clinic, and that's really what's been a big deterrent that the patients just can't uh, get that into their lifestyle, of course. So what we have on the horizon, the next couple of slides, shows where our future is going in the area of percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation. And it's therapies that patients can do at home by implanting a device in the ankle and let the patients do their therapies at home. This is this is no means um, advertising the next couple of slides just to make you aware of what's new and what's out there. Blue Wind is one which the University of Washington, myself, is involved with in a multi-center trial looking at the efficacy of this where they wear this little ankle bracelet. You implant the device and then they wear the ankle de- uh, bracelet in order to communicate with the device. This allows them to do more sessions, so looking at doing daily sessions rather than just once a week. Um, and they've seen improvements in efficacy thus far. So that idea that it's only for mild to moderate patients may have been only because they could only do it once a week. If you can do it more often, maybe we can try to see if it'll work for more severe patients. Here are a couple other ones that are out there too that are being evaluated. So many of you at your institutions might have Um, uh, attendings that are involved in these, and these are also showing a lot of promise, uh, and more studies are ongoing for these. Again, implantable devices that work similarly. Another device is a wearable vaginal device. Uh, um, I'm involved with this as well, have been for a couple of years at the University of Washington. Um, and it is a like a pessary uh, and it is meant to stimulate the inferior hypogastric plexus again for the treatment of overactive bladder. So um, hopefully we'll see uh, more information on this uh, uh, with respect to its efficacy on the horizon. So now let's look at sacral nerve stimulation. We know um, it is, uh, um, modulates the voiding and the continence um, reflex pathways working by uh, afferent and efferent symptoms, or its indications are not only for the overactive bladder urgent contents, but also for non-obstructive urinary retention or Fowler syndrome, as well as fecal incontinence. And its long-term efficacy has been well-established repeatedly in the literature at this point. So uh, what I talk to patients about with this is that the money is really, again, in how that lead gets placed, which is really my job. So I need to pick a patient that is going to be appropriate, that I think is a good candidate for this type of therapy, but then how well the therapy works is really how well I can get that lead placed. And the goal is to get the lead, as you can see in this picture here, if you can see my little arrows too, the lead is running along the length of the S3 nerve, and these are the four contact points. And if each one of those contact points is running along the length of the nerve that allows them to be utilized for the therapy. We want to also see that we get good motor as well as sensory responses at all four leads and at very low thresholds, less than two volts. With those parameters, you should have a good outcome. And here's the comp- what the implantable stimulator then looks like. So there's a newer one that's on the market today. and these are the two that are available InterSim and axonics for sacral nerve stimulation today. The differences between them, um, are you can see the pictures here, the implantable generator that makes the thing work. This is what the interstim one looks like. This is the axonics. It's much smaller. Um, and the other issue with the axonics that it addresses um, uh, several needs, which the uh, sacral nerve stimulation community has been talking about over a number of years, and that it is a um, rechargeable uh, so the battery life lasts for about 15 years rather than with the under stem, it lasts on average, we say about four to five years and has to be replaced surgically. As you can see, it's much smaller. It's all also MRI compatible, so it doesn't have to be removed if the patient needs an MRI. It's current controlled, which theoretically the idea, rather than voltage controlled, would provide more consistent therapy. But we really need a head-to-head trial to prove that. And then the timed lead design um, it makes it much more stable to resist migration. So there are advances with respect to what's happening with the axonics device. Uh, with respect to the therapy though, is delivering the same therapy to the same nerve, so the outcome should be the same. And in future directions for sacral nerve stimulation, this is um, uh, called Spera, and it's using electromagnetic waves to power the implant. It's a tiny little implant. There it is. You can see compared to pills there, that's what gets implanted down by the S3 nerve, and then all the Uh, There's no implantable generator. The generator is external and communicate the device. We're involved in this too at the University of Washington to evaluate how well this is going to work for sacral nerve stem. And then the third therapy is botulinum toxin A. Um, We can do this in the office. That's what makes it so nice. Um, The starting dose by the FDA approval studies is 100 to 150 units, but we can go up to 300 units, especially in our neurogenic bladder populations when needed. Um, The patients have to be willing to catheterize or at least talk to them about the retention rate was 6%. Um, But it was a short-lived retention rate, having to do intermittent catheterization for days, a few weeks afterwards. Um, uh, uh, And so they have to be counseled that that is a possibility, but of course 6% is still pretty low. And then around the time of the therapy and the injection, uh, getting a UTI is possible. We do use prophylactic antibiotics to try and decrease that UTI rate by the FDA uh, approval studies again. Um, The uh, UTI rate was 13%, which is a little high. I think that's higher than what we generally see clinically, but we do need to talk to patients about this. It does work really quite well. Um, They do have to have repeat injections. It lasts on average about six months. So they come in twice, maybe three times into the office in a year and to have it repeated. So uh, what's in the future of Botox? Well, there's now an intravesical Botox gel being investigated. So where you just put it into the bladder, much like a Eurojet. um, And uh, uh, there is a randomized control trial that's ongoing right now to look at the efficacy of this and how feasible would this be for patients to be able to do. Okay, so we have our first line, our second line, our third line. And, as I said, if you get to the third line and they say they're still not um doing well, we do have our fourth line, which is meant to be for rare cases, including urinary diversion or augmentation cystoplasty. The reason this is being put forward is that they found clinically many people are toggling between one, two, and three tiers and not even moving on to the fourth tier. Hopefully we don't have to move on very often, but people have sort of forgotten about it as a treatment option. And in the right patient really can be very, very helpful. So here, augmentation, cystoplasty, again, the goals are to what? Increase the bladder capacity, of course, disrupt that coordinated detrusor contractions that are abnormal, causing that bladder to contract all the time, and then provide for a low pressure system. So how well um, does it work? Uh, Well, there are complications needing to do intermittent catheterization in the neurogenic detrusor overactivity, NDO, it's 60%, so it's higher than in the idiopathic, which it would be, stands to reason, right? The failure rate, surprisingly though, um, uh, is higher in the idiopathic group. And if you think about it, maybe that's not so surprising, I shouldn't have said that word, is that in the idiopathic group, oftentimes there are multiple reasons why they're having their overactive bladder urge incontinence, even pelvic floor issues, and doing an augmentation cystoplasty isn't going to fix their pelvic floor issues, as an example. So definitely there are other complications too that we know of when we use bowel in a place where it's not normally supposed to be, right? So metabolic disturbances, mucus, stone, and of course we have to be wary of the possibility of perforation in the future. So again, here is a summary for the overactive bladder clinical care pathway, first line, second line, third line, and fourth line therapies. And then a final slide for the overactive bladder evaluation and treatment. Just to put it in nicely, you have copies of these slides um, for you, but the evaluation again, mandatory is history, focused pelvic physical exam, and a UA. Other additional things would be a fluid diary, postpartum residual and symptom questionnaires and the Cysto or UDS for complex and refractory patients only. For treatment, then we have our first line, behavioral. Second line, medications. Third line, forms of neuromodulation. And then fourth line is augmentation, cystoplasty, urinary diversion. So with that, we're going to move on to the next category, which is about stress incontinence. These are the AUA SUFU stress incontinence guidelines. And then the first area we have our evaluation and then we have our treatment on the n- other side. So just to break that up easily. So let's look at the evaluation first. Again, stress incontinence, the loss of you know, urine. Okay, with the Valsalva maneuver, we know that it's very common. The etiology is usually thought of as threefold, although they can be crossover between these. The first is intrinsic sphincter deficiency. So it's loss of that intrinsic mucosal coaptation within the urethra, and that results in a very low valsalva leak point pressure of less than 60. Or you can have urethral hypermobility, which is the loss of that hammock-like support under the urethra that's provided by the pubocervical fascia, and what we often see is a little bit of a higher valsalva leak point pressure when it's associated with that, greater than 100. And then we have the integral theory, which is the loss of that ligamentous support, specifically the uh, pubourethral ligament, that allows for this dynamic kinking phenomenon to happen um, to stop urine from leaking. So, here I'm going to show you some pictures the intrinsic sphincter deficiency. This is probably a familiar picture to many. And you can see here on the right side this nice coaptation. The mucosa is nice and plump. And over here, that mucosa isn't so plump in the urethra, and you've got a wide open. Uh, here where the urine just can come out. Here's where our estrogen also comes in handy, right? The local vaginal estrogen can replace, help maintain the integrity of that vaginal mucosal uh, uh, or the vaginal mucosa and the urethral mucosa and that helps as well. Here's the urethral hypermobility. I think a picture says a Thousand words, you can see this pubocervical fascia here and the hammock that's underneath the urethra and at time of valsalva pushes down, right? Against the urethra and you can see it's closing the urethra. Here, if you have a tear in that pubocervical fascia, right? Then you can see what happens. You lose on that valsalva, you lose that backbone of support. And that's the whole idea here of the urethral hypermobility and recreating that support try and improve that and then the integral theory here now we're talking about dynamic kinking that happens at the time of valsalva because the pubourethral ligaments are keeping this stable at the level of the mid urethra and with the valsalva pushing down on the bladder and the proximal urethra and allows for this dynamic kinking so the urine can't come out that's if you have a urethral ligament that is intact that and that's what the mid slings are meant to do. So we look at the evaluation for stress incontinence then, What's our mandatory parts? The history, of course, you gotta find out, do they leak when they do a Valsalva? A focused physical exam, just like I already explained, for overactive bladder, but this time it also includes a cough stress test of some type, in order to document that the urine is coming out. I put Q-tip test down, it's not part of the mandatory part, and uh, it's meant to assess for urethral hypermobility, you still read about it in some textbooks, but don't do it. It causes discomfort, patients don't like it with that little Q-tip at the, bot- at the end of it. Um, you can really eyeball to look for that urethral hypermobility and if you have to, then if you're gonna do, put a little catheter in, a straight female straight cath, because you're going to check for a post-forward residual, then after you empty the bladder, have them cough and see if that actually moves, that catheter moves uh, when they cough and that can be your modified Q-tip test. The evaluation also requires a UA, again we're doing the same thing, rule out UTI and hematuria, but then there's one more thing that's involved and now it is part of the mandatory evaluation for stress incontinence to do a post-void residual assessment to rule out retention. So you can see here the evaluation is the same with the addition of, it's the same for the overactive bladder um, with the addition of a cough stress test and post-void residual. So, is urodynamics mandatory before doing any stress incontinence surgery? Well, traditionally, the views have been yes, before we do anything invas- invasive or some surgery that might have morbid consequences. But clinically, many of us have given this up years and years ago probably 15 years ago but there was nothing in our literature really to support that. Uh, although, you know, what we were doing clinically until um, uh, finally the value trial came out and that showed that women that were already planning to get a sling, they had a positive cough stress test in the office, uh, they had urethral hypermobility, uh, they were then randomized to get a urodynamic test or not, and then they ultimately went on to get their sling, and it showed it didn't. the urodynamics didn't change the plan, whether they're going to get a sling or not, and it didn't change their outcome. Um, there was no difference in outcome uh, between those who got a UDS and those who didn't suggesting that no one learned any additional information from the UDS that caused them to change something about maybe how they tightened the sling or what they did. Um, So we know there's really no added benefit in the otherwise straightforward index patient with stress incontinence that doesn't have any other complaints, don't don't have to do a urodynamics. If you don't, they have urethral hypermobility. they emptied their bladder well, the UA is negative, and documented the cough stress test was positive in the office. So again, here's the um, uh, AUA-SUFU guidelines from 2017. Um, uh, It shows then again, our initial evaluation. Uh, I didn't say about cystoscopy, of course. We don't need cystoscopy either, unless you're suspecting that something else is going on or they're a more complicated patient. So now let's look at the treatment options. The treatments can be broken down into non-surgical and surgical. Uh, And then special cases below, which we'll touch on too. So non-surgical, observation, pelvic floor exercises, Kegels, continence, pessaries, and now there are also vaginal inserts patients can buy actually over-the-counter they are much like a tampon that just provide that support underneath the urethra as well. Those are the only options that there are. If they don't seed with these or they don't want to do a pessary or a vaginal insert, their next recourse is really to move on to surgical options. Surgical options, per the AUA guidelines, bulking agents, midurethral slings, which are the retropubic and the transobtrators, they make a comment about the single incision slings, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, And then pubovaginal slings or fascial slings, which are bladder neck slings, and then the birch copal suspension, which again is a bladder neck suspension. So I'm going to that a little bit more in detail to, to differentiate that. So first, let's look at the bulking agents. So what's the rationale for them? Well, they cause coaptation in the urethra. They add a compressive force and thereby add resistance to the urethra by increasing the substance of that submucosal layer. We first used collagen, but found that that absorbs pretty quickly and you have to have re-injections. So permanent uh, substances have been uh, developed or products have been developed, the durasacroplastique and the coaptite. Uh, There is no standout in any of these. They each have their pluses and minuses with respect to ease of injection or so on and so forth. It really is in the uh, provider's hands what they feel most comfortable with. The ideal candidate, though, for a bulking agent is really somebody who does have pretty significant intrinsic sphincter deficiency and no urethral hypermobility. If someone who has urethral hypermobility, then they really do it justifies a trial of a mid sling or some other therapy like that. Um, and I'll show you the data that supports that in a minute here. Um, so the ideal candidate really for bulking agents strongly feel that um, it's those that have significant intrinsic sphincter deficiency, they failed previous surgeries, they have this lead pipe urethra, and your only recourse is really to improve the integrity of that urethra somehow, and you do it with the bulking agent so the booking agent outcomes uh one-third of them you know review of the literature over and over and over again you can see and it shows that by and large a third of them maybe become dry a third somewhat improved and a third fail so those aren't very good odds a third a third a third and that's why it's not really the first go-to agent it often requires repeat injections even the first encounter Uh, Meaning you do the injection, they don't get the outcome they wanted, you take them back to the OR or in the office, if you're doing in the office, and you you top it off with a little bit more. But they also often require repeat injections as time goes on. And we see on average about every year and a half, they're coming back because they have recurrence um, and they want um, more injections. And there are complications. Many people view this as just do a bulking agent, it's super easy to do. There aren't really very many uh, complications, it's easy. But there are complications, and I've seen some women devastated by repeated attempts at uh, injection of this um, permanent material, um, and then also abscess formation. As you can see here, here's an abscess that formed around the urethra, and there's this black substance coming out, that's the durosphere. I did want to mention in the previous slide, just really quickly, I listed these three here. There is a new agent that's come out on the market. that's being used in Europe and having some really great success. Um, and it's now been approved in the United States, so you might hear more about it. Um, I don't know of therapists who are actually using it yet in the United States or using it successfully. It sort of came into the United States right before our COVID-19 hit, so um, no elective surgeries are happening. But we, after this disaster is over with, hopefully, we will probably hear a little bit more about it. The interesting aspect of the newer agent is not only the newer agent itself, the material, but also how it is placed. It's a different technique of injection, which uh, provides for more reliable um, injection as far as location. So just to have mentioned that. Um, Okay, so now let's look at our other surgical treatments. What we have on the AOA guidelines is a retropubic suspension, which is a birch or a colpo suspension, if you've heard those terms. It is an abdominal surgery. Here's the picture of it over here, and you can see what they're doing is Um, With your suture, grabbing some of this fascia that's next to the urethra bladder neck area and tying it up to Cooper's ligament to provide more support around the urethra at the time of Valsalva. Uh, The next category are slings and autologous fascial slings, usually rectus fascia is used, but fasciolata as well. Here is a picture of harvesting the sling of the rectus fascia up above in the abdominal area or suprapubic area, and then down below in the vaginal area placing that sling that now goes around the urethra, so underneath the urethra, thus the term sling, and pulls the sutures, proline sutures usually, up. Uh, back up to the suprapubic area and ties over the rectus and again then causing this lift or support at the level of the bladder neck. The midurethral sling, however, is again Something at the mid-urethra, it's meant to be no tension, not lifting anything up, and it's resting at the level of the mid-urethra. We have the retropubic, which you can see those pink arrows there. We have the trans going through the obturator space here, and then the single incision sling is the same trajectory as the obturator, it just stops at the inferior, um, or the obturator internus muscle, rather than going all the way through that obturator space but the trajectory is meant to lie the same underneath the urethra for the most part in all three of those uh, situations. This slide just really brings home the point, and I think this is so important, especially as urologists who are going to be doing work in this area, is the difference between a sling that's at the bladder neck and a sling that's at the mid urethra, right? So bladder neck, again, you can see it placed there, and you can it's usually placed a little bit of tension, and it's meant to hold that proximal urethra in place, and bladder neck in place of the alva Whereas here, this is stabilizing the mid-urethral area, and uh, so to allow for that dynamic kinking that's happened when the patient does have urethral hypermobility. So both of these really work well in a patient that has urethral hypermobility. If they have no urethral hypermobility, this isn't gonna work, the mid-urethral sling, right? over here no urethral hypermobility and lead pipe urethra then a bladder neck sling can be helpful if it's placed under a little bit of tension and it's really stabilizing the bladder neck where it is so that's the main difference so when you read the literature and they talk about slings today it's a little bit better people are more specific about what they're looking at but in the past they used to lump slings and you'd find they were doing retropubic slings, they were doing a, a pubovaginal I mean, as well as mid-urethral all lumped in together. So our choice of surgery, those three that are mentioned are mentioned because they've been historically considered gold standards. And why are they considered as gold standards? Because in the literature there's some long-term data that exists, long-term being defined as greater than five years. However, so that's the BIRCH, sorry, the autologous sling, and then also the retropubic synthetic mid-urethral sling, right? So the two bladder neck procedures and the mid-urethral sling. However, even though it has five-year data, let's look at that data. This is one of the best studies looking at the difference between BIRCH versus autologous sling called the Sister study. It was reported in 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was a randomized control trial that looked at Uh, The difference between those two with respect to objective and subjective outcomes at two years and then the extended trial took it out to five years. And what you can see right there, the autologous fascial sling at two years, the subjective success rate 66% Compared to the birch 49% That's pretty bad. I think at two years, you're gonna tell your patient at two years This is how good you'll be. And then when they looked out at five years further, It was 31 versus 24%. So a lot of dissatisfied patients after this procedure. The BIRCH, again, keep in mind, is an open abdominal procedure. The autologous sling, although it's not open abdominal, you're still harvesting something at the rectus fascia, and then also going below. The autologous sling was associated with a little bit more in the way of avoiding dysfunction, uh, because it was put under a little bit more um, tension, and then UTIs, but uh, that wasn't that, uh, significant. When we look at the mid slings, one of the um, most well, um, well-known studies and well-done studies was the Thomas trial looking at the TVT versus the TOT, so the retropubic versus the transobtrator, and looked at outcomes only at 12 months on this one, but what they found ultimately was there are similar objective and subjective outcomes between the two. So meaning that either one of those would, could be a good clinical choice for you. If you looked at the objective cure rates between the two, 81% versus 78%, and subjective cure rates, 62 versus 55 or 56%. So the subjective cure rates do often fall below the objective cure rates, although this subjective cure rates in this study really are much lower than what has also been was re- reported previously as well as subsequently um, in our literature. We have much higher sub- subjective cure rates. So it could be by just the way they um, were looking at those subjective cure rates. And the objective, they looked at a negative cough stress test, negative pad weight test, and no retreatment. So that's pretty stringent. And the subjective was just self reports of no leaks whatsoever. So there could be some, uh, you know, mixed incontinence in there, looking at the bladder diary and then no retreatment. All in all, though, they showed a little bit higher voiding dysfunction in the TVT, the retropubic group, 3% almost versus nothing in the transobtrator, and then more neurological symptoms and, and pain issues in the groin on the transobtrator com- compared to the TVT group. But again, no difference in post-operative urgency, incontinence, satisfaction, or quality of life between the two groups, showing that they are comparable with respect to efficacy and certainly safety. But if we look in the retropubic group, of course, it's been around the longest. First FDA approved, I think in 1996 or so, um, and so we have good long-term data. Here we have 17-year prospective data on this first group of women uh, that were looked at with the TVT. Three centers, and we have 78% of those patients had a follow-up of a medium of 17 years. So that's pretty good. It's not just that half of the patients we have follow-up on. And what we saw really was the 81%, oops, sorry about that, 81% objective cure rate, All right, so what we're going to say is, what about the single incision slings then? Well, the, the, the guidelines for stress incontinence are out at 2017, so that's already three years ago. And at the time, they said there's lack of long-term data in order to support the single incision slings, but there was long-term data for the full-length transobturator and retropubic slings didn't say that you couldn't use the single incision slings or they wouldn't recommend it, but that you need to be sure, full disclosure to the patients, um, that there's not a lot of long-term data that's there. But in 2019, there still didn't add anything additional, but what we do know, because, because the guidelines came out since this study, there's now a SOLEX study, the 522 FDA mandated study, which was out to three years and shows good efficacy and safety These were composite success outcomes, objective and subjective criteria, looking at the SOLEX, which is the single incision sling, at 90% compared to the transobtrator at 88 89%. So basically the same. And this was a randomized control trial that was done. So we do have data now that goes out three years and even some others that are going out five years to support um, the use of the single incision sling in the otherwise uncomplicated patient. Um, can you um, move the slide? Yeah. Okay. So the compl- there are complications, of course. Here's a list of the complications. Go back one slide, please. Can you go back one slide to the complications? Yeah. So what I want to point out there is on the complications that all of those things, except for that, which is highlighted in yellow, are associated with patients with any type of anti-incontinence surgery, no matter what you choose. And if you look at those, you'll see that's absolutely true, right? The only things that are associated with a a mesh surgery um, are things that involve the mesh, extrusion into the vagina, perforating the urethra or the bladder. um, Those are mishaps that if they happen, they should be recognized at the time of surgery and then corrected. These complications can only... Oh, you said that. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I'm trying to do it on... uh, on mine as well. All right. If you go to the next one, so we know today and in 2017 on the guideline, 2019, and even as back as early as 2014 by American Urologic Society and Society of Urodynamics, Female Urology, the urethral sling is the standard of care surgical treatment of stress incontinence. And so the hubbub there with the mesh litigation due to its very favorable risk to the benefit ratios. So um, it really is the standard of care and still today in 2020 it's still the most common procedure done worldwide for stress incontinence. So the next slide shows the whole algorithm again for stress incontinence, showing the treatment evaluation on the, your left side and on the right side of the treatment. And the last category are these special cases So if you go down to the next slide just real quickly the special cases are those that where we have to have a little more thought right and as urologists we think okay they've had prior surgery they've had lots of things going on they now have a fixed immobile urethra well if it's immobile the mid-urethral slings really aren't going to work well so but what does work still is something that happens at the bladder neck right so we already said for bulking agents Pubovaginal vaginal sling can come in nicely if it's done at the bladder neck and then underneath a little bit of tension. And some people have advocated retropubic mid-urethral slings, but then placing it somewhat at the bladder neck, which is really almost a little bit off-label, but will also work. But the caveat there is you have to be careful how much tension you put it on. If you think you have to put it on significant tension because their urethra is so immobile, you're better off with a fascial sling. Doing concomitant prolapse surgery. They say any incontinence procedure um, is possible, but really most people would say if they have urethral hypermobility, doing it in a mid-urethral sling is really what should happen. The third category, have any concomitant neurogenic bladder issues? Well, we're going to look at them from an, as a neurogenic patient and do our evaluation appropriately and try to see, is it really what's in their best interest. Most often in neurogenic bladder patients, you're having to do something on the, under a little bit more tension, and then you're going to look at a fascial sling at the bladder neck. And then the last category, of course, keeping in mind those childbearing patients um, or um, maybe other cases like geriatric or obese. you're going to take them one at a time. Certainly the caveat as well with a mesh procedure is a- identifying to the, to the patient that they are permanent materials. But in that, having said that, when we use permanent materials with our pubovaginal slings as well, if we use proline, we should be disclosing that to the patients too. All right, next slide. So the next two slides are just, again, a summary just to put it all together for you. Um, is the evaluation, is history, physical focused pelvic, cough stress test, a UA and a PVR is what's mandatory. A fluid diary and symptom questionnaire can be helpful. The other things, cysto-UDS imaging for complex patients only, and our treatment options are our non-surgical, right, either Kegels or something that's going to help support it, like a continence pessary, and surgical, bulking agents, and then I put underneath there our gold standard procedures with our subjective successes at two years and then at 17 years, so you can make those comparisons when people are using those terms standard and saying that the birch or the pubovaginal sling is still the gold standard, but compared to what? And I just showed you the data if you want to look at comparisons. Um, uh, These are the subjective successes at the two in 17 years. So next slide is just a little humor slide. (laughs) So, (laughs) people to ponder (laughs) and my thank you. (laughs) Um, And then, and then the last slide, um, uh, give you the opportunity to give feedback today um, about this, uh, uh, this lecture. You could take this survey. Also, please use social media, hashtag urologycovid, uh, or look at the website um, for uh, urologycovid.ucs.edu. So thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to take questions. Sorry about that little glitch there. Don't Perfect. know what thank happened.
1: You so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Sutherland. That was a great review of a, pretty, of a big topic and a lot of patients we treat and certainly very testable. So thank you very much. Um, yeah. I'm gonna try to sneak maybe one or two questions in here. We got a couple about, you know, has the new data on the use of anticholinergics um, and the links with dementia and elderly patients, um, has that played into your practice at all?
0: Absolutely so that's where some of the uh, recommendations too for the guidelines change to think about the combination therapy so that if you do feel you're using an anticholinergic you're using it at a smaller dose and then maybe increasing the efficacy with the combination therapy of the beta agonist or the other two we don't have time to go into all the details but um the uh, other anticholinergic medication that does not cross the blood-brain barrier is trosporide or sanctura. In the short-acting or the long-acting formulary, it doesn't matter. It's a tertiary or a quaternary amine, I mean, uh, is the uh, chemical compound. So it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. So it can't cause cognitive, you know, mishaps. But all of the others do cross the blood-brain barrier. Of course, the beta agonist does not cross the blood-brain barrier. So if you're concerned about that, we're seeing increased use of both of those and i I don't understand the rhymes or reason it's all negotiations and has to do with money between the insurance companies and the the pharmaceutical industry but we're seeing some where Betrick is first line and Mm -hmm. i'm so surprised to see that now but um i think some of that came from a push because of this dementia issue
1: perfect yeah good question Uh, yeah Uh, that was a great question so what else do we have? So there's also a question about um, the what you know whether valsalva leak point pressure should play into your sling of choice. A lot of these patients, you know, don't have your dynamics. Um, you know, for um, you know straightforward stress urinary incontinence, it's not necessarily indicated. But does that kind of play into your thinking about what what type of sling you might select?
0: Um, so if we're talking about what type of sling between a retropubic I mean, what type of sling bladder neck versus mid-urethral versus what type of mid-urethral sling. So those are two different thought processes there. But first and foremost, what I will tell you is I put those valsalva leak point pressures there because they're often nice little test questions. Um, Clinically, I think um, it's really hard to use the valsalva leak point pressures. If anybody who's had some experience doing urodynamics and trying to look and see what is the exact valsalva leak point pressure and seeing a reproducible answer throughout the same test, it's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And so how can we say 60 is, less than 60 is intrinsic sphincter deficiency, but if they have 80, they don't, or if they have 100, they have urethral mobility. but then if they have 120, you know, do they have any ISD? No, we can't really say that. So there are some guidelines that came out from, you know, some, some helpful hints, I guess, to use from some studies that have been done so long ago. And we still see those numbers and sort of, but what we really think about is if they have a low leak point pressure, think about there's more than just urethral mobility probably going on because many of these patients have urethral mobility and intrinsic sphincter deficiency we don't think of it as an either or but more of a continuum right of both of those problems happening but how much urethral have mobility versus how much intrinsic sphincter deficiency in one patient so if they have a really low intrinsic sphincter def- or really low leak point pressure think about huh well, do I need to do something a little different maybe? I think if they have a lot of urethral hypermobility, they're good for a sling regardless and that urethral hypermobility is gonna make sling work. If it's a severe case, I'm gonna be really, really careful about how I tension that to get it right up there on the urethra without being obstructing. The other aspect of that is I think what you would see clinically and maybe um, you know academically that if they have really high leak point pressures, I mean, sorry, if they have really low pressures and a lot of intrinsic deficiency, there's more in, uh, data to support maybe thinking about doing a retropubic or a pubovaginal sling. So in other words,
1: having the money be a little
0: at the bladder neck, mm-hmm. right? The action.
1: Yeah. Sounds, sounds good. Um, unfortunately, we are at 1113 already, so we'll get the rest of your questions answered on the website. thank you for listening.
0: We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.